Hey everyone, welcome back to the second episode of the podcast. We ran into some recording issues while doing this week's episode, mostly coming from my microphone, so I apologize for that. This week I talked to Harry Uffendel. He is an old colleague and mentor of mine who has an incredible background. He started and sold a business out of university called Meatmail. He was the first employee on the ground for Tilt Australia, which was eventually acquired by Airbnb, so we have some funny stories about that, and is now the head of operations and growth at Partly. He is an avid angel investor with over 20 angel investments made in the last 18 months. Hope you enjoy. Great to chat again as always, but yeah, following, following Airbnb last few years have been pretty, um, pretty crazy, really. I mean, uh, mm. got married and... Yeah, Thank you. Uh, left Airbnb, um, decided to do some travel. So yeah. very fortuitously decided to do that about a year before COVID hit. So uh, I feel very sorry or sympathetic for the people that had sort of um, had planned their OE now. So fortunately we managed to do that. So we did six months travel, you know, did mm. South America, did uh, managed to get Japan for the Rugby World Cup, which was great. Mm, awesome. uh, although not a great result if you're an All Blacks fan. No. Um, and then uh, and yeah, so, you know, travel for about six months and then the, the idea was really to finish and settle in, in France, uh, with mm. a lot of friends in London that didn't necessarily want to do the London thing. So we thought we'd, you know, be close enough to visit people, but have a, a slightly different experience had been through France before and loved it. So well, one of the main attractions there, apart from it just being a, a, a pretty romantic and an interesting place to live was uh, station F, which is a huge, um, I guess, startup campus there. So I've got about. Under one roof, they have about 40 different accelerator programs, and each one has about 15 startups. You've got about 600 startups, nearly 2,000 entrepreneurs. So it's a, it's an amazing environment. So is, yeah, is, we, is, yeah. is Station F a, um, an organization, or is it like a location with a name? Or So what, what is Station F exactly? Station F, I think it's a, it's a bit of both. I think it's an organization, but people refer to it as a location. And it's yeah. um, basically was started by uh, an ex-entrepreneur in, in France who basically had like the, a big telco over there, like a, a Vodafone equivalent, and sold it and then pumped money back into the startup ecosystem. And it's sort of it's the equivalent of, this is a classic New Zealand measurement, but it's sort of like 10 rugby fields long. It's like these old sort of like, I think it used to actually be used for airplanes back in the day. And... So, I mean, it was an, an amazing place to go to work. I was in, you know, had a cool little apartment, really lucky to find somewhere uh, nice and uh, in Paris to live because um, obviously it's a pretty expensive place. And yeah, had, it was living the dream for, you know, eight weeks and then COVID hit. And I, I think everyone experienced it slightly differently, but, you know, being in France, you, it was very, like, it was a huge lockdown where no one really knew what was happening at the time. And you had these military troops on the street with AK-47s and you had to show a piece of paper with like, uh, your name, your address and where you're going and what time and sign it, um, all in French. So as well, so I sort of holding up this how, piece of paper. How, how, how is your French? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. And your, and your no, wife? Good. Um, she, she, she gave it a crack. I think we, um, we sort of prioritized for us what was important, which was like being able to like socialize, like go out, uh, order wine, order food, um, and say hello to people, you know, and make very small talk. But, um, that as soon as you stop using it, it kind of disappears. It disappears. Yeah. Um, and you, you were kind of living, it was almost like a work from home remote lifestyle before COVID hit, before it became popular. Um, did you did you get to experience anything at Station F um, 
in the startup scene or, or was it too it was too short-lived for you to really immerse yourself in that experience? Yeah, I think I tried my best to immerse myself there. Like there was, um, there was some great people. It was all, it was, mm-hmm. it was just an interesting place to be because there was all these different uh, accelerators that had their own niche. So some people, you know, just working all sorts of different stuff um, mm-hmm. that you sort of bumped into, and they sort of had one block for startups, one huge block for partners, so like Google and Facebook equivalents, where they'd sort of help early stage founders. And then the, the far end was bars, cafes, and restaurants. So it was a really cool sort of social vibe to it. Um, and then naturally, like most uh, Kiwis and Australians, we sort of found each other and a few English people <laughs> and ended up forming a bit of a crew, but we did try to like, we, we did make a lot of French friends as well. But um, yeah, we still still keep in touch. Well, it's not too bad to be in New Zealand as well. It's still a, yeah. still a, good, still a good lifestyle to live. It is. And actually, yeah, you, you, you having um, your, your new kid, probably best that you grounded yourself as well. Because New Zealand's where your family's from, so you you got family nearby and stuff. Correct. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, well, actually, we we moved away from family <laughs> about. Uh, so when I when we came back to Auckland, I sort of played around with what I was going to do next, but at the same time, met the partly team. Um, you know, when they were sort of like six or seven people, and uh, they were based in Christchurch. So anyway, I sort of uh, wound up joining them as VP of Ops and Growth, and started mm. commuting from Auckland. Realized pretty quickly that wasn't going to work. Um, so, uh, flew my wife and I down when she was 36 weeks pregnant. Uh, so it was, it was very last minute. I can't believe she actually agreed to it, but, you know, found a midwife and did all that stuff, but it was, uh, it was a great move, but yeah, we, we sort of left behind the, the family support we had in Auckland, but we, we have got a few friends and she's got an auntie or two down here, which has been helpful. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's a great place to raise a kid quite which is. It's not as expensive as say Sydney and, and Auckland, so you can sort of um, get a house with a bit of a, a backyard, if, you know, if you're lucky. And um, in in Paris, I think our, our apartment was like 33 square meters. So <laughs> you, uh, it, it is Sydney, nice Sydney, to be home. Sydney apartments aren't getting any better. I've been looking around, and, and you know, 50, 60 square meter, not quite the 33. That's like a in a rugby field. I don't know what that would be. That would be like the in post or like. Where you where you score your goal? That's basically that. Um, now, yeah. I uh, I want to get to partly, but I was I was thinking we could start from the very beginning, um, just as a way to structure getting through all the experiences that you've had, and you've had quite a number of interesting experiences, particularly in building startups. Um, your first business, and I've actually never asked you this before, uh, just regarding meat mail. Can can you give us like the the, the genesis story behind that, you know, how that came to be, you know, what what was the context of the time? I think you were studying, uh, who did you build it with? And then just give me the, the general gist of what happened um, in the lead up to, to you guys starting that business. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, it's, uh, it, it's a pretty scrappy uh, classic sort of first startup story. So uh, I was in at the University of Otago in Dunedin, um, big flatting culture down there normally living with like you know four to six other people and uh the way we sort of ran it like you know every week you do a flat shop usually someone cooks and so we're lying lying around one day and you know in the student quarter everyone lives within about three square three square kilometers and supermarkets are super expensive and as a student sort of surviving on a pittance and trying to make your money go as far as possible and i remember uh, Months before, we'd sort of been thinking, God, there should be um, like a big wholesale butcher chain down here, like saying we can get good, cheap, uh, quality meat. And then 
as it so happened, we looked at the paper one day and I remember walking into my, uh, what, who became my, my co-founder, Dave Booth, um, he's now the CEO of a company called On Deck, which is doing uh, incredibly well. Uh, so he's, he's come a long way since then. We, uh, we sort of looked at this advertisement of this butchery opening down south. And so we thought, you know, it was, it was a little bit too far away from the student quarter. So we reached out to them and said like, hey, you know, we're thinking about this idea where, you know, we're going to buy in bulk. Uh, cheap meat and then sell it onto students. So that was like the, the initial sort of genesis of it. And then the next day we, um, we, we had clipboards, we printed like uh, surveys on an A4 piece of paper and literally just walked door to door up Castle Street, which is one of the main student streets um, uh, for, for good and bad reasons. But we, we went around and like asked them, you know, hey, how, how much meat do you buy each week, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And then we actually signed up 50 flats to be part of our first order. So um, it was kind of just like a fake it to um, to have a product until you can buy the, the meat and bulk kind of thing. So we, we did that. And then, you know, next thing you know, two or three weeks later, we had over a ton of meat in a fridge. We were doing subscription packs. So we signed everyone up to subscription uh, and that sort of went from there. It's kind of like Uber Eats before Uber Eats or Uber Eats for, uh, for, for meat. What just culturally is, in, in the dorm system is buying your own meat a big a big thing that that was obviously something that you guys had identified as being like a big issue um can you explain that and what the why meat and why not say vegetables or a, another form of food yeah so i mean um so yeah so to clarify wasn't wasn't in the dorms as such people normally do one or two years um and then you move out to flats but all the flats oh, just yeah. so sort of happen to be like space around the university so it's, it's quite a cool sort of uh, environment and what why me i don't know i mean we were a flat of six boys um you know three or four of us played rugby we ate a lot of food okay. and so yeah. meat meat was always the expensive one and then you'd like you know subsidize it with like uh, potatoes and rice in bulk so like meat was normally the big expensive item so that's where we started but then yeah very quickly we realized um people didn't just want meat they wanted vegetables so we started tying you know your meat subscription to an optional veggie box um mm. and then so it's like developed to becoming like your, your every, your weekly essentials. So you have like your meat, your veg, milk, eggs, bread, all that sort of uh, generic stuff. So it, it did evolve pretty quickly. Uh, from an operational standpoint, can you, well, how, how, how do you, how do you kick that off? Um, are you delivering it yourself? Are you going around to the, getting the best prices from the butchers and pitting them against each other? Um, what, how did, how did that work from, from the cold start? And then how do you figure out, scaling that how do you get the delivery system there was no like app uh back then to connect you with couriers it was probably a little bit more like rudimentary yeah yeah it was i mean it's um it wasn't easy i, I think at the end of it i promised myself i'd never do another startup that involved perishable goods because <laughs> <it's like, laughs> if you get it then it's, it's you know you've got to worry about um temperature uh, you know if things have got lumps and you know if, if it's like an ugly fruit someone might complain mm. where someone else might not so um, yeah, operationally, so we, we found one main supplier and then we eventually changed, you know, a, a couple of times, but found someone that would supply the bulk of our meat and then the bulk of our veggies and then our, our weekly, other weekly essentials. And then, yeah, as, as glamorous as it sounds, we would be, uh, opening up this, uh, this freezer that we hired in South Dunedin at like four in the morning and trying to like come up with a system that we thought was efficient and that we just continued to iterate on it. And it, I don't think it probably got worse. But we sort of had the baskets laid out and we'd have music on and, you know, it'd be like Dunedin's freezing as hell, right? So on winter, it's, you know, like below freezing, below zero. And so we're, 
we're packing this meat and then like you have moments like particularly when i'd sort of done a stint in um in law and then left and came back down to work on it full time you sort of think to yourself like what am i what am i doing like why am i not just in bed and then going into my cushy corporate job but um yeah, yeah we so, so we packed it and then we would we um we hired a truck eventually bought a truck but would literally drive around in a, a like a hand-drawn map right <laughs> to, to follow the route all the addresses yeah follow the route and um we ended up developing something in-house that would actually make it a bit easier and try to direct us, you know, what's the most efficient way to go and then tick, you know, delivered or not delivered. But then you do it, people aren't home. So mm. it's, uh, it was tough. Like, I think you were sort of... Huge, it's sort a of huge, uh, yeah, huge logistical um, challenge. From a, from a, and this is your kind of wheelhouse on just thinking growth, you know, at tilt at, at partly. Um, how did you look at, growing the business, were there specific things that you guys did or that you saw inflection points in your growth or was it really just steady? It was just, you know, with, with the piece of paper going from door to door, maybe a little bit of word of mouth and then just sort of letting it fly. Um, or that were there things that you built into that process that helped accelerate um, signups? Yeah, it's, um, it, it's a good question. It's, it's a, it's a combination of sort of all the above. Like a lot of it was grounded in sort of what, what do you call like guerrilla marketing style stuff. And then other, other things as we grew, which became a bit more scalable, but in the, in the early days, it was very much, you know, the, the classic, you know, do things that don't scale. We, um, actually one experience that came in really handy was when, um, over some, the summer before I had got a job as a door to door salesman for an electricity company. So I was there. Uh, that person you'd love to see who was just trying to swap, uh, get you to change company. So um, it, that, it was sort of like the, the worst and the best job I've ever had as well. Like getting, you'd sort of, it was on commission. So there was like zero, like if you if you didn't get a sale, you came home after eight hours, knock on doors and had zero dollars. So we, we both had the, we've, we both had the exact same experience. I was selling raffle tickets uh, on the go. side of the road and they'd send you out to um, Padstow from the city, you know, the McDonald's in George Street, it was, the office was there. They'd send you out there, and if you got nothing, you got nothing. Um, and I'm pretty sure it came out to be a pyramid scheme, so you should look up the company that you were part of because a lot of these ones, there was a big uh, regulatory thing that went down. Um, but anyway, sorry, sorry to interrupt. So, so that, that job there was, you know, one of the best and worst learning experiences, it sounds like. Yeah, well, I sort of like, I mean, it, it was because I learned sort of rejection and um, I, I mean, I, I turned out to be not so not so bad at it. So, I, you know, most days I'd, I'd come home with a decent sort of hourly rate. But um, the, the good thing was it taught me how to do door-to-door sales, literally like how to build a sales team, how to go street by street, what the sort of like best practices for selling were. So it was really helpful. So we, we did that initially. We, you know, we trained uh, a student like commission only sales team. Uh, we gave them maps, we gave them areas and gave them a script, trained them, sent them out. Um, and, and that's, a, that's sort of worked. And then the also things like it was early days, you know, this was sort of 2012, 2013, where organic was still alive and well on Facebook. So we would do competitions where like, if you like and share, you get a chance to win. So they're like, the it'd be crazy looking at it now, but the reach we used to get for free or like $20 off the boosted posts would like really get the word out. Mm. And then, Another thing that we did, which was actually really good, we, um, we, and you know, as a student, you don't really buy that expensive meat, right? So you never buy I fill it for your flat. So um, we set up something where if you had our poster in your front window facing the street, it was like meat mail gets delivered here. Uh, you'd gone the chance to win like one and a half kg of I fill it, and so like, every student wanted to win that. That was like Christmas, right? So. 
um, you'd drive around, there'd be like a hundred flats with these posters and then people would go, oh, what's meat mail? And then so right, that's interesting. And we would stickers on mailboxes. <laughs> I was there like a few years ago and there's still like the odd faded sticker. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, can't that's get awesome. this. Um, you, you, you're studying at the time, presumably. So you're going to class and doing all of that, starting to be a, a lawyer, um, which I, I, I know all, uh, I'm all too familiar with uh, divvying up your time um, to, to work on a startup while, while studying. But uh, what was the, the, what was the end point for me, Mal? You, you sort of wrap, you wrap that all up and then you decided, you know, these are, this is, these are early mornings, late nights. So I'm going to go move into more cushy job, as you said, uh, as a lawyer, management consultant, was that, was that kind of the impetus for you leaving Meat Mail? Yeah, it was. And I mean, um, Boothy and I sort of had a sit down. I remember when we started talking, like it was, it, it was hard yakka, but you know, we'd, we'd learned how to scale it. We had, um, we expanded into three cities. We had city leads, like people running their own cities. So like it, it was growing and there was a path there, but we still thought, you know, we, we've learned a fair amount. Do we want to spend our, the probably all of our twenties and into our early thirties, like building something that, you know, we're not crazy passionate about. And, and the answer was no. And then, so we thought, okay, well, there are other opportunities out there. So why don't we take these, this learning, you know, and, you know, and this like relatively small win, but, you know, still an, an acquisition and, and run with it. So we, we end up wound up the business and, you know, sold it to a, a local, um, local supplier in the end. And, uh, I, some of my family was in Sydney, so I was pretty excited by the opportunity to move there and, and, and pick up something new. Boothy had uh, somehow worked his way into the first non-technical job at AngelList, so he went to San Francisco. Um, and yeah, I mean, in terms of the then the transition, it, it was funny. I'd sort of done the startup thing, but I'd, I'd come from like doing 10, 11 months as a lawyer. And so there was still a little bit of me that was like, hey, am I, am I a startup person or am I going to go back into sort of a corporate role? I'd always been interested in management consulting. And so... Yeah, I, I talked to a few people, and um, where I where I sort of landed was the idea that um, management consulting could form a decent base to my pyramid, like give me some good solid skill sets, and it would never be a career, like it's not for most people. Mm-hmm. And then I could always fall back on that if I stayed in the corporate um, route, or I could use that experience and then sort of pivot into startups, which is ultimately what happened. Out of curiosity, this is twenty what thirteen ish. Um, did you did, was the startup seen like a big thing? Did you know what a startup was, or was it like building a business, or how did you view startups, or how did other people view startups at, at that time? Especially when you're kind of just coming out of university, where the typical pathway would just be go, you know, just go work at a law firm. Yeah, so I mean, it was it was I'd say very different to what it is today, particularly in Sydney, right? Sydney's. Uh, you know, got, got an incredible startup scene and it's, it's sort of on that like second or third wave where people have been part of those early success stories have now, you know, you see guys, um, you know, like the, um, like Ben Humphrey and stuff who were at Lassian and now they're founding Dovetail and doing incredibly well. And they've seen ex Canvas um, early employees found their own thing. So like, that's really starting to happen now. Even in, even in 2013, it's, it was a lot smaller than what it was. Like there was no, um, tech hub in the middle of the city there was fish burners it was still pretty early like it, it probably had that more early vibe to it um maybe mm. almost close to where new zealand is right now or Auckland is right now mm. if i'm being honest so yeah there like there were 
it, there was opportunities for startups, um, but it, I don't think it was as obvious as a choice as for a lot of people now. Um, mm. And yeah, I mean, even coming from New Zealand, there's, there, there was even less people that would like see startups as a legitimate career opportunity early in your career. Like it was very much a pressure of like, are you doing law, accounting, or going into banking? Um, mm. Wasn't a whole lot of people going down the startup route. Mm. Um, your, your time at, as a management consultant specifically, can you, can you recall, you know, the skills that you learned during that period? I imagine that would have been very helpful mm. and it probably speaks to your ability to, to execute now and as an operator now. What are those skills that you learn as a management consultant? Because there's a lot of people that probably listen to this who are at that sort of like early stage. They're not sure whether they want to jump into it or maybe they're a first time founder while at university. And management consultant, consulting might be like an interesting pathway for them just in the short term to really accelerate their skill sets. You know, what are those things that you learned that you take away and go, great, that was a really good experience. I'm glad I, I'm glad I did that. Yeah, it's, it's a good question. And I think, you know, I mean, you could follow a path that's not the traditional path and still do, still do exceptionally well if, if you're passionate about what you're doing and it's somewhere that you can learn, and particularly if you're around a team and, and really a, a boss that you can be mentored from and, and learn uh, and learn from. Um, in terms of like the specific, in terms of management consulting specifically, I, I think it actually taught some of those really good core skills, like those analytical skills, um, even things like being able to, you know, do Excel really well and build out models, um, being able to build great slide decks, um, being able to take a bunch of information and try to synthesize it down. And sort of just like that, I think sometimes that clarity of thought and even like the process of writing succinct memos and things like that, like it's hard to, and even when I look back on more, like the, sometimes the attention to detail and the stuff I was doing wasn't glamorous, but they're all just like little minute skills that kind of build on top of one another. And I, I'm actually, I, I think it was useful for my career given, I mean, I'll be honest, I didn't apply myself. Uh, I wasn't a great student. <laughs> I was, it was sort of um, do the bare minimum to, to get through. Uh, and so I think those years as management consultant were, were great. And I think, you know, you, you can absolutely go from university or straight from school and try hustle your way into a startup job. Um, and, and that's great. And maybe that's the best path for some people. Um, for others, yeah, maybe they're a little, um, I guess more risk averse and having that base is actually helpful, right? Like those skills are useful when you go to that startup, you're not in their eyes, at least seen as like a grad, even though grads aren't all made equal, you can do a lot of stuff while you're at uni or when you're not even at uni. Um, but you just have those few years under your belt and you've got some core skills you can always fall back on. So yeah, I, I, I think it was a good start anyway, before sort of uh, moving on. Yeah. Um, you, you spent a couple of years, uh, at Black Dot, uh, Bevington Group, um, and then you decided you you know you're going to jump back into startups. But um, instead of starting your own, you're going to join join one, a high growth one. But as a as a first employee, which which is almost like starting one in a way, you know, in a weird kind of way. Uh, what was the mindset there? What why why did you think that that was the time? Did you feel like your learning curve was kind of slowing down and you wanted to throw yourself into the deep end um, with, with startups, you know, particularly in the case of Tilt, was it something that, was it an opportunity that you thought was interesting, a space that was interesting? Why did you make that move? 
Yeah, it's um, it's hard. Like thinking of my answer now, I wonder like how accurate it actually is. Like maybe my thinking was different at the time, but um, mm. from memory, I think I I've always been one to sort of I've always tried to maintain the mindset of optimize for learning. And whenever that learning slows, or you think you're sort of coming to a, a sort of a, a bit of a, a lull, that's the time to move on. And so that's sort of what happened to me. And I mean, I, th I think I, the book, I, it might even be by Reid Hoffman or in part by Reid Hoffman called The Startup of You. And I think the general concept I walked away with was like, treat yourself like a startup. So if, if you're personally growing 10, 20% month over month, like 20% month over month compounds like eight or 10 X at the end of the year, right? Like versus someone growing like 5% month over month. So I've sort of always thought about how do I optimize for learning? And so that was the time to move on. And I thought, well, where am I going to learn the most? Um, it wasn't going to be a big corporate. It was going to be somewhere smaller. And yeah, I think I, I'd gone into the corporate world again, but I, I think a lot of founders will test to this or, you know, people that have worked in early stage startups, like that bug, like that entrepreneurial, that startup bug never leaves, like <laughs> might be able to ignore it for a while and then it comes back. So, um, yeah, I, I looked around for a few startups and then, um, wasn't, uh, wasn't by any means like one of the, one of the first, um, employees, but was at least the first employee in Asia, um, or one of their first international hires for tilt. So. It's kind of a weird um, introduction. It was actually through um, Bridget. It's funny how things work, but I, I reached out to Bridget Loudon, CEO of Expert360, you know, amazing founder, discussed a role potentially at her company. And then um, for whatever reason, I can't remember now, but we decided not to proceed. But she knew uh, a guy called Mike Debeau, who I, I know you mm. know, um, who was at Tilt. So Mike yeah. and her both were at Bain and Company Consulting, Cross Pass in Melbourne strangely when he was down this side of the world and uh, now he was head of growth at Tilt. So mm. she introduced me to him um, and then went through what was a pretty arduous interview process. Like I, when I think of corporate job, you know, like two, three interviews, pretty standard. I think Tilt, I got to like eight or nine interviews. And then I learned that's actually pretty common in, in some lines in those like US startups. And so I think the second one after an intro call was with this guy, Oliver Young, who was a, an, an epic angel investor, um, one of the first investors in the Airbnb and a bunch of other amazing companies. And like, I, I think a lot of people have interviewed with him and he's pretty straight up and down. Like after two minutes, I said something that I didn't think he wanted to hear and he began closing his laptop screen. <laughs> and I did sort of rescue him. I was like, no, 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 no. What I meant was, um, you know, I've actually done this and this is why I want to join Tilt. And like, I forced him to sound the call for 10 minutes. And then he sort of finished with like, Okay, uh, I'll introduce you to my wife, and then just close the laptop. Really? <laughs> and so, yeah. so his funny. wife, I think his, his wife's also an angel, and I think they work help particularly with talent. So they, right. yeah, had a had a, a very nice conversation, a longer conversation with his wife, uh, and then yeah, ended up joining Tilt, um, sort of one man band in Australia. Um, mm. Flew to Toronto, did the onboarding there, but most of the team was in San Francisco. Um, but our international team was based in Toronto, and. Um, yeah, that, that was the start of a pretty sort of amazing um, journey, real full of ups and downs. But uh, can you yeah, can you tell? Yeah, because I, I worked with you there in a couple of different capacities. You you uh, stuck your neck out for me in a big way to get me over to San Francisco, and we'll talk about that in a moment um, and how that went pear shaped just with uh, the, <laughs> the acquisition. But and I got some funny stories uh, for that, but maybe not for the pod. I, I was thinking I might write something up for it, but. Um, can you just talk to me about like some of those experiences uh, from the outside looking in? It seemed like you were 
you know, you know, first time at a high growth startup, KPIs, you know, they're on your case, you know, you're having calls every week about progress, you, you have serious growth targets that you have to hit. And I, I felt the pressure, but it was almost secondary because I was, you know, you, you had the gun pointed at you and I was kind of like hiding behind you in the corner. So um, can you talk to me about that, the pressure um, and those some of those learning experiences or the, the key takeaways uh, from your time at Tilt? Sure. And, and so I, I didn't ask you before the show, but um, you're more than welcome to, to join me for a beer if you want it. I'd say 30 my time, well, so I'm it's a bit more acceptable. I, I might grab one actually. <laughs> I actually need to close. Let, let me do it because I'm going to close the um, I'm going to close the window. It just started raining. That part will get edited out, but I got the James Squire. So cheers, mate. Well, James Squire, very good. Is that the 150 lashes? Is it? 150, the... yeah. Oh, mate, that's that's very good. I've got a this is a New Zealand hazy IPA parrot dog. Uh, it's, mate, it's good. Cheers. Um. So yeah, the um. Yeah. So to answer your question, yeah. Look, I mean, with Tilt, um, high growth startup, um. We had raised a ton of money, like 67 million um, international team was getting rolled out and had pretty aggressive targets to sort of keep up this momentum to grow into that valuation, right? It was, they, they did a tremendous job fundraising. And so like there, there was pressure to hit targets, but I, I don't know, it, it was a strange time where I was at a point in my life where I was just ready to throw myself into it. And I, I sort of, I, I, I've never felt more energized at work really. I mean, probably, um, aside from, uh, like, I, I didn't have the same rush at Airbnb, even though I really enjoy my time. I probably just got it back now working for Partly again because it's that similar early stage. But I never, I mean, I never felt pressure in a bad way. It felt like focusing. It was like pressure that made me focus and prioritize and just get shit done. And, I mean, I was very fortunate to have a great boss, um, Tim Ryan, who's now sort of uh, VP of People and Ops, I think, at Clearco. Um um, so they're doing it. You know, they're doing a tremendous job as well. So, yeah, I I thoroughly enjoyed my time at Tilt. I think just managing the the pressure. Um, you know, there were there were things like you know I was the only person in Australia for a time, and so I was like, okay, well, how do I make a name for myself? Uh, how do I become like someone that people in San Francisco actually believe in? So I I kind of went above and beyond early to make an impression, hit targets, over communicate, send really detailed email updates. Um, get over to San Francisco, meet as many people as I can. Go, like, so I'm just like, I think I, I did a reasonable job of building that early reputation, which which really helped, you know, and I think people in Australia and New Zealand working, um, will probably know what it's like working as um, like the international offshoot. And when the home is San Francisco or somewhere in Europe, um, you are a little bit removed. So you've got to, you've just got to find those ways to um, I guess make yourself known and, and to get, you know, get into the th uh, thicker things. But yeah, it's um, it was a really enjoyable time. I remember just working on weekends, and I was just I just did it purely because I really enjoyed doing it. And, you know, how, how much how much of that is? Well, actually, this this is a separate question. Just you, you always speak highly of 
um, Tim, um, what what makes a good manager? Like, why why do you look to him and say that? What what things did he do that made him stand out as a as an exceptional manager in your mind? Yeah, God is um, high time. I'd I'd give this a far better answer, but just off the mm. top, I mean, he he always had time for his direct reports. I mean, but you know, in, in my mind, he, he always had time for me, no matter what it was. And he was busy, right? He was head of international. He was responsible for rolling out markets, growing all those teams. Ultimately, all the numbers rolled up to him. But when we, and, and actually, this is one trait that I loved about him. When we sat down for our one-on-one virtually, like there could be a fire going on and like out like around him and you wouldn't know, like there could have been something like a literal fire or something like really big in the company. And he was a hundred percent present and with you, like this was your time. Right. And so he was really helpful just like being there. And I mean, he was an incredibly smart guy and really, I, I think he always approached it with like, you know, he'd say like, you know, Harrison, this is your time. You know, like I'm here to help you. And we just, um, a terrible version of his accent, but he, you know, he would like find like the blockers and, you know, and remove them for me. And it was really like the way he framed it was always like, I'm like, I'm not here to tell you what to do. I'm here to clear the roadblock. So like, tell me what I can help with. And I will just like give you the, sort of like the whole Google mindset. I like freedom and responsibility. And um, yeah. And then, and then I don't know, we, we had such a great team around us. You know, we had other great um, country managers like um, uh, Olivier Buffon, who was in, um, who was in Europe. Uh, we had guys like Sam Power, who's uh, worked with some great startups. And you kind of just got lifted up. You sort of like tilt when they'd raised that much money from, such great investors they attracted some great talent. So I was sort of thrown in that position where like you just have to rise to the challenge and uh, having a great boss like Tim was, you know, made that just like an order of magnitude easier. Um, yeah. So he, his, his skill was getting out of the way and letting you do what you did best, which was operate here. And it's, it's hard for him to get into the weeds, not being in the same country or t- same time zone as you. Um, yeah. but, so, and, just, so I, and a good connector as well, right? Like sometimes like he, you know, just connecting you with the right people, um, you know, having time to answer questions um, and just like being able to step back and like, it was actually almost asking questions, like asking questions of me as opposed to telling me what to do and things I could go away and think about. So yeah, I, I really liked that style and try to, um, I was I was probably first time managing until Australia. So I was really just like copy pasting as approach. <laughs> you, you did, um, uh, it would have been what two it was two years at till it happened pretty quickly it felt like a lifetime though because so much was happening there were so many milestones to hit um there was so much happening in the product um and i just remember very vividly me begging you to go to san francisco to work over there and and you saying okay i'll i'll, I'll try to make this happen for you and and truthfully i was like okay like he'll, he'll try but they'll push back on it because we're like so far away but you ended up making it happen um and, you know, I went traveling beforehand, landed in San Francisco, and then you get a, you gave me a call uh, when I was in Whistler, uh, having, having the time of my life, uh, saying, hey, mate, look, I'm really sorry. You, you tried to buzz me while I was on a mountain, and I remember getting the call, but the, the phone was stuck in my pants underneath the actual jacket, so I couldn't, I couldn't reach it. Uh, and I take a call, and, and you just let me know that, you know, Tilt's being acquired by Airbnb, and they've sort of put a freeze on everything. And there's been some controversy around this, actually. Um, but can you give me your experience? You know, what did, what did you know beforehand? You know, how did you find out? You know, how, how did that come to be on your end? Yeah, it 
was, was a crazy experience. I mean, you're up a mountain and I was, I was actually in the Marlborough Sounds, a pretty remote place in New Zealand. And um, it was Tim who actually gave me the call as well. And the phone, I remember the phone was cutting out. <laughs> so I like scooted downstairs and I heard just like, so I knew something serious was happening. And then it was kind of like <laughs> a quiet <laughs> Airbnb. And I, was, and I was like, holy shit. And then I was just trying to figure out like, is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? Mm. Do I have a job? Like this Tilda standalone company, like what, what happens? And so that was, I mean, that aside, like once we got the news, so I think this was, you know, I got told probably maybe as a day before or a couple of hours before the, the team wide um, announcement and yeah, it was crazy, right? Cause you really, you put your heart and soul into it. And um, this whole time you're thinking, you know, uh, with, this is our, our path, we're going to raise a series C and then we're going to do this. And we've got plans to expand to all these other countries. Who, who are we going to hire in New Zealand if I'm in, in Sydney? Like, in, like you've really almost got your life mapped out for the next few years. And then one phone call kind of changes all that. Um, and yeah, I, I, to your, to your point, you know, there, there was sort of controversy around you know, at the time, probably how it was handled, but you know, it's, it's such a difficult um, position um, for founders to be in uh, and leadership teams to be in. And, you know, I, I won't speak for them, but you know, if you ask people that have gone through an acquisition, you know, it's particularly one that ends up in not a, like not a, not a great acquisition, more like an aqua hire. Would have they done things differently? Like, yeah, I'm sure there's much of things they would have done differently. Maybe they would have communicated stuff differently. Um, but I mean, it's it's tough, right? There's a lot of pressure when you've raised that much money and you're kind of trying to sell the dream to keep your team motivated to raise money from investors to like keep this thing alive. Um, but I, I think ultimately what happened with Tilt was we we had a great team. We had uh, we were growing incredibly fast, but we just hadn't quite figured out the uh, the business model yet. And in in retrospect, I think there was probably a huge opportunity to almost become like a, a like a Revolut style competitor or a Revolut style product. Um, we were sort of right there in a similar what's, space. What's uh, Revolut? So Revolut's kind of like um, like a, a neo bank. Uh, type thing, like very, very easy. So it's got like a $10 billion valuation now, um, mm. growing incredibly fast. And so we sort of had all those capabilities of like instant money transfer, you know, mm. banking licenses, um, and some of the, even the like functionality. But yeah, I mean, hey, that's that's what happened. And then so we um, they acquired Tilt for about the same amount of money they raised, I believe. Like I, I never found out the official figure, but I think it was I think investors actually got back pretty much all their all their money. Um, would have been, I, I do feel sorry for, you know, I worked there for two years. Um, I've got some great friends that worked there for five plus, you know, that, that, that must've been really, really, uh, trying. And so, yeah, anyway, the, the acquisition happened and ended up going over as the, um, in a job, not too dissimilar to what I was doing, but basically working directly underneath the, the Australian country manager, um, at Airbnb and sort of as the head of business options strategy for Australia and New Zealand. So yeah, I, I, I went across with that and, um, but yeah, I, I remember at the time, the first thought I was just like, shit, like, how am I going to get, like, what am I going to say to Luca? How am I going to get Andrew a job? Uh, cause mm. we'd sort of agreed to hire him as a full-time, um, like a, a full-time grad and, uh, yeah, didn't have to worry about him. He ended up becoming like the, the culture and crusher and his awesome. thing. He's hitting, yeah. like hitting and setting every single sales record non to man. So I think, I think he's doing just fine. I think he's doing but, fine. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I saw I saw Andrew a couple of weeks ago, and he's doing fantastically. 
Yeah. He's he's living all around the world. He's having the time of his life. So there's uh Has he got I don't know any complaints. Rolex or anything or no? I don't no, not not the Rolex. I think he's he's more of uh He's more stylish he, than that. More stylish than that. He's got the long hair, he's got the long hair. Um so you you went to Airbnb, presumably there was someone you know, not everyone went went to Airbnb. At the time I wasn't a full timer at, at Tilt. Um so I didn't get involved in any of those processes, but I and probably neither did Andrew, but you as a full-timer there and someone who'd been there for a couple of years and was pivotal to the Asia business, um, what was onboarding? Like, like, how does that acquisition actually happen? You know, what's the process that you go through? You know, because I'm sure it'd be very similar if Google acquired some smaller startup or, or Facebook. Airbnb is kind of, it's not of that magnitude. It's probably an order of magnitude smaller, but it's still, you know, still up there as one of the best companies in the world. So what was their process like in, in bringing you on board? Yeah, I mean, in, in hindsight, and, and even at the time, I was like, if, if we're getting acquired and, you know, and this, this is sort of like ending or going a different direction, like, hey, who better to be acquired to than Airbnb? Like, literally, that, that would probably have been the company top of my list. And it's kind of funny, yeah, like, you got the announcement and then you get an email saying, hey, we're going to CC the Airbnb talent team. And you also get all this other information about, like, how it's, how the company's, what, what's happening and what happens to, you know, people's jobs. And so, yeah, you sort of, um, I think for engineers and data scientists, it was kind of like, uh, do you want a job? Look at their CV. Yep. All right. Here's a job <laughs> for, for other folks, uh, myself included. We, you know, they sort of tried to position us in similar roles. And then we went through like a short interview process, shortish interview process. So, um, yeah, it was kind of like Airbnb. They, they come in, they've got their talent team and they sort of walk, they, I mean, their, their interview and onboarding processes are like amazing. Like it's very professional, very well done. You really like, it's the whole thing of like, um, you know, sort of be a host. It's one of their sort of core values, and that's sort of the same in the interview process. So it was a nice experience, and then you know got the offer, uh, and then joined in the Sydney office, not too far from where Tilt was. So um, joined the office in Surrey Hills. So um, yeah, and it, it was kind of nice. Like Airbnb was a big company, but then when you probably had. 30 or 40 X tilters. Uh, so you go to San Francisco and you bump into people. Some people are still there now. Um, a guy like uh, Jackson, who was led all our analytics. And now he's um, like, I think he's one of the, the head people in sort of financial planning over there, you know, working directly with the leadership. So some people have like gone on and done incredibly well and made great careers at Airbnb. Did, did Airbnb, like the existing Airbnb employees accept the tilt acquisition as being pretty, like were they accepting of, of Tilt employees coming into the company? Because I've heard stories, you know, uh, you know, Google buys Blogger in you know, the early 2000s and, you know, put them in a separate room and turn on the aircon and sort of <laughs> leave, leave them to, to, to wither away and, and others embrace those employees more. So, like, did you guys feel that Tilt was embraced as a company inside the organisation? I, I think I mean, I, I wasn't in San Francisco. We'd probably have a better idea. I, I think, you know, naturally there's always like probably skepticism when it comes to an, an aqua high. They go like, you know, what are we going to use that technology for? Is it going to be built into our products? Um, but, you know, they managed to, I, I think they were seeing like the, the quality of talent that had a tilt, particularly the engineers, like lots, lots of great x rack space engineers. Um, like they, that, that were great in their own right. So even though tilt wasn't a huge, going to ever be part of like the, huge part of the Airbnb product or anything, I think um, having that talent come across would definitely be welcomed. And, you know, that, I'm, I'm not sure if it still exists today, but I saw the, um, initially at least the Airbnb, the Tilt functionality got built into splitting payments for 
large groups of people. So like six or eight people booking an Airbnb. Funnily enough, it was quite a um, uh, regular t- uh, use case on Tilt, you know, people raising money as a group, splitting payment. So, mm. uh, well, you, but, you know, now a, a lot of my friends, and you guys might use it over in New Zealand, but beam it. Do you know? Yeah. yeah. And everyone sort of uses that terminology now. Oh, I just will beam it. And I cringe because I'm like, that could have been, it could have been tilt. That could have been tilt if there was a couple of extra pieces to the puzzle and the product that had been um, resolved by the, the right place at the right time and having the exact product really, really does matter. And, and being a couple of years too early on that is makes a difference. And it actually, this kind of brings me to my next sort of segment on you leaving Airbnb and then starting your own thing. So you obviously got that, that itch again. Um, can you talk to me about your wanting to leave Airbnb to start your own thing, uh, ProFlow and what that meant for you? Like why? And ultimately we were kind of circling back here because you ended up going to France and station F for that. What was that experience like? And, and what were you trying to achieve, uh, there? Yeah, I mean, to, to I guess to, to reference my earlier point when I left consulting, it was kind of the, the realization that my learning had plateaued. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it, it, if I'm being honest, I actually miss some of that, like the drive and the hustle. Um, and I, I think different teams at Airbnb, yeah, they were like, they, they were really like putting in the hours and putting in the effort. But, you know, like I, I also felt like at Airbnb, if no one showed up for, three months, the company would have just kept chugging along, which obviously is like, not true, right? Things would break and, you know, well, hell would probably break loose for various reasons, but I don't know. I remember sort of going in and just, um, you know, at Tilt, we were there, you know, six, seven in the morning, working to like 9 p.m. at night. And I was in that stage of my life where I really like thrived on that. Um, Airbnb, more mature company, people had probably done that before I joined. And a lot of people were kind of happy to, you know, to have, I guess, a more sort of probably getting closer to like a corporate style environment, although working in a really cool place. It's like, it's like too, too big to fail almost like you, you take someone yeah. out, nothing, you know, it's, it's pretty stable yeah. environment with, whereas if you remove yourself from the tilt equation, there is no, like there is no Asia growth. It's just, you yeah. know, me, you know, me in the corner, making a couple of calls every now and then it's sort of different. Um, so yeah, well, sorry, I, 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 cut, I cut you off. No, no, that's fine. I, I think you're right. There, there was that as well, where like you realized, um, if I don't shop today, like it's it's not going to be super impactful. Whereas you know, a smaller company, if you're not there, like literally that job might never get done because there's like literally no one else to do it. And so, a combination of those things, and I, you know, I've been there just over two years. Um, you know, invested a little bit over half my stock, and I just thought, you know, what's the opportunity cost here? Like I could stay in, you know, Airbnb was never going to be saying that's going to like at that stage was going to make you, um, you know, significantly wealthy where you could sort of like have a lot of options open up to you if you're an early employee. Sure. But, um, yeah. And so I thought all those reasons I will like, I haven't got a good enough reason to stay. So really wanted to do some travel, really wanted to start playing around with my own ideas again and get closer into that startup scene. And it also been something to sort of mentor and advise a few, uh, founders. So I, I was sort of like staying close to the startup scene without really sort of feeling like I was part of it. So mm-hmm. yeah, decided to leave. I could be getting dates wrong here, but sort of maybe around um, middle of 2019, did that travel. And then, yeah, I started playing around with a few of my own ideas, um, ProFlow, uh, which is one that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it was, 
it, it was an interesting thing when you're traveling of um I, i'm still not sure the best way to do this but traveling and trying to work on ideas get a business off the ground it's, it's kind of difficult like you can go with best intentions right it's like when you go home for the uni holidays and you take all your books mm. <laughs> you kind of know at the time like they, they're not going to get read but i'm going to feel really bad if i don't take them or taking like your running gear on holiday and then like mm. they stay in the same bag so i yeah, I, I enjoyed traveling um worked on things from time to time but didn't really get serious about anything until um near, really near the end of the trip getting back to auckland and then eventually moving to france mm. um raising capital doing all that as part of proflow was that something that you you went through or you pursued aggressively um i'm going through that process now and i, I know how hard it is you know it, it depends on what location you know if you're in san francisco maybe it's easier if you're in australia maybe it's harder Mm-hmm. Um, any, any, do you have any feedback there to someone starting something from scratch and raising capital? Like, is there any tidbits you could take away from your experience with ProFlow, but also calling on your experience uh, at MeetMail and then all your other experiences too? Well, uh, so with raising capital uh, mm. specifically, yeah, I mean, so the the thing. There's a few things I think people should really think about when they're starting a company um, and I'll specifically like frame it around fundraising because there's like a list of like good, bad, ugly stuff advice can go on forever, right? So I don't want to contribute to that list. Um, but one quick thing I'll say is I think it's really good to think about your personal runway. So how long can you survive without taking any external capital? And, um, and, and actually like even extending that because things typically take twice as long as you think. So like leaving your job with six months of runway before you have to raise. Yeah. I mean, like maybe if, if you're happy to raise and you've sort of like, you, you're very confident, better having like a year plus because then you can make, just head down for six months, make progress, then start that fundraising process. But you, you want to be like knocking on the door of not being able to pay the rent and then having to raise money. Like it just, it's, it becomes less productive. You want like enough urgency uh, and stress without it like being all encompassing. Yeah. And so, yeah, with the with the fundraising process, um, I guess I'll share my experience. So with Proflow, I raised a friends and family round. So small checks, um, built a list of people, followed the similar process that you do when you're raising a, a pre-seed or a seed round. So, um, you know, treat it like a process, um, built a sort of a teaser deck, um, had good template emails, reached out to people, set up first calls, had a, had a safe note, very easy for them to sign and wire money and really just like took in drips and drabs to you know to to get me enough money to last i think the the next stage when i went to actually raise from professional investors was was harder and i really didn't give myself enough um as much runway as i probably should have and i guess the the learning one of the learnings there and it, and it seems so obvious is like it's so much easier to, easier to raise money when you've got traction and it's like, okay, well I need money to make traction. I need to <laughs> like acquire customers and like, like yes and no. Like sometimes it's just, you, you can like, you, you can be all consumed by this fundraising process. Nothing's like it, ideas are free, right? Execution is everything. And you can have a, a deck and work on this and get all the intros that you want. But as an investor, and especially now I've like gone on the other side of the table, I really don't care about ideas. I'll probably skip the, like, if you've seen people like review decks live, like on a loom mm. or a video, they skip to like 
the traction slide and the team slide. And that's kind of it. Um, and I, at the time I thought, oh, you know, investors were like this idea and this, you know, the VC thematic is like the, the word they would love to use. And I mean, show them a graph going up and to the right. Holy shit. Like your job just got so much easier. So my, my key bit of advice would be like, make sure you've got enough personal runway so you don't have to do those like early rounds or do those early rounds earlier than you'd like. And just folk be maniacally focused on progress and traction. Um, even if it's pre-revenue, but just the fact that people are using your product, there's some sign of customer love. Um, people continue to come back. Can we, can we just touch quickly on this friends and family round? Because that, that kind of is the solution to giving yourself enough runway to find traction. Um, yeah. Cause it's yeah. easier, easier said than done. Get, yeah. Easier said than done to get the, um, that, that traction graph up and to the right. Uh, and I've experienced it firsthand and, um, and sometimes money can help and sometimes it's just about product market fit and there's enough market pool to, to get you to the up and to the right. But as that kind of middle ground solution, friends and family, can you talk about the specifics of check size, number of people, you know, what was the sell? How do you temper expectations? Cause you're taking money from people, you know, you know, trying yeah. to, trying to frame this as a, I don't even know how you would frame it. Like as a, as a speculative investment, as Hey, I just need some money to, to, to work on this thing. You, you're going to own a portion of this business. Uh, understand that I will likely fail. Um, how, did, how did you go about that? Yeah, I think like some of the things that you touched on was is exactly how you should lead it. Like some of these people might not be used to start investing. They might not have ever made a start investment in their life, which is not, not a good thing. Um, mm. The last thing you want is someone paying in $50,000 when they have hundred thousand dollars in savings into one startup idea like that's just not good capital allocation um that, so that aside i think you want to just be really upfront with like hey startup investing is super risky investing in early pre-seed or pre-revenue uh, like startups is the riskiest of the risky the chances are you'll never see your money again but i'm but the way i sort of framed it was like this is all true yet i'm devoting my life <laughs> and my like opportunity cost potential like other opportunities to like dedicating myself to this um so i think for a lot of the people at that stage they're really betting on you the founder so um but I, but i think yeah even just those little things have just been upfront as especially friends and friends and family around it can be you, you don't want to sell people the dream you you don't want to make it seem any like more any, any less risky than it is if anything i think you over index um not to like scare them away from investing, but just to sort of like protect uh, yourself in case like it's not the one in a hundred, one in a thousand success and they see this great return on their money. Um, so, yeah. Um, and just, just on, on the, and I, just my own interest here, you know, how many people did you speak to? Yeah, you know, check size and stuff. Yeah, check, check size as well. Um, only because there, there's been a trend towards smaller check sizes and i feel like that trend has consumed san francisco in fact it's, it's kind of what san francisco has been built on these sort of small checks people making these small angel investments and i feel like in australia it's more frowned upon um which i don't agree with at all but you know if you try to put in three grand or five grand into like a startup like they'll be like ah like don't worry about it whatever so the first question is you know how many people did you, you don't have to give specific numbers, but roughly how many people did you speak to and what did you find was like the sweet spot on the check size? And then we'll get into the angel investing stuff, which is, a, I think that's a good segue for that. Yeah. So um, when I did a friends and family round, I, 
Um, it's probably final invest is probably like a dozen, maybe a touch over a dozen. Um, check size range, but I, I think setting a minimum five thousand is is good. Um, and then yeah, it was sort of drips and drabs, like five to ten k, tiny bit more. Like that that was sort of like the round that I was playing in, and yeah. which is good, right? Because I mean. Like I said, you don't want someone putting in 50k, 100k um, if, if they can't afford it. Whereas a lot of folks, if you're there, do well in their careers, they've got some savings. Like they go, well, hey, this is a 5k punt. Um, you know, I'm I'm happy to sort of make that bet. Um, so they were kind of check sizes, and the, the idea that it's kind of frowned upon, I'd sort of say, well, like, like from who and like well, like who cares? I mean, yeah. for, for the founder, like you're gonna get that money, and you know you're trying to do what you're trying to do. In terms of like creating a messy cap table, you can always, it's not, it can be a little bit difficult, but you can always clean it up later, like putting them all into um, some sort of like uh, unit trust or some other instrument um, mm. where you have like or a sort of a nominee structure. So you, yeah. you can fix that later down the track, but yeah, um, in an ideal case, you'd have, like if you're raising 100K, you've had four sophisticated good angels putting in 25K each, but sometimes, you know, they're, they're not ready to make that bet and you have to rely on your own sort of like your own network and your own friends and family to put in that money. But yeah, ideal cases you can save up and just not have to take any money until um, you can raise from those more sort of like professional, semi-professional angel investors. Awesome. Um, and we'll touch on what you just mentioned here about rolling them up because I've, I've, I've heard a lot about roll-up vehicles, UVs, but I don't know how they work. But We'll, we'll circle back on that and I just wanted to jump into the angel investing stuff because that's something I'm particularly interested in um, and I'm probably not at the stage of my career where I should be allocating capital to uh, to making startup investments, although I, I want to desperately do that. Um, so I, I sort of hold myself back and crypto is probably the only thing that I can do that it has a bit more liquidity and has as much risk um, that I could lend myself to. Your angel investing career started, what, 18 months ago? Yeah, probably 18, 18 24 months ago. Yeah. And what, what was the, because it sounds like it's a drug. It's, it sounds like it's addictive. And I'm sure the first one was really nerve wracking. And then after that, it was like, let's get into this thing. Can you describe to me like that first experience, your mindset going into it, you know, and, and the details around that first kind of investment? Yeah, I mean, it's, um, as I mentioned, like some near the beginning, uh, when I was uh, in Sydney, I was sort of staying close to the startup scene and that I was doing mentoring, advising, pitch nights, like just, just trying to naturally, like be helpful to founders thinking, you know, like maybe I can earn some sweat equity. Maybe I might want to join them one day as an early employee. Um, and then, for, like, I guess post the Airbnb IPO, fortunately, I now had the ability to invest a little bit of money and starts, which is great to start seeing money. And so, yeah, I think those, those first few investments, I, I'm, I'm, um, I, I don't mind taking on pretty high levels of risk. I think my, uh, my capital allocation is like would be at the, at the very extreme of um, most people's risk profile, but I'm a big believer in, um, entrepreneurship and you know how we're going to solve these big global problems i think it's it's technology and entrepreneurs that are going to solve these big problems so i've i mean whatever people say about like valuations and um and the market and, and bubbles like i've 
I've never had a strong conviction that like the way to generate um, serious long-term wealth is being able to get an early and invest in these like private companies that have got the potential to like change an industry or change the world. And so I was very happy to like, I, I was basically all in one stock. I was like 95% in Airbnb, which isn't a good <laughs> um, portfolio allocation. So I started sort of selling down that and then redeploying it into multiple startups. And yeah, I mean, alongside that, did a bunch of early crypto investments, not like early, early, but, you know, relatively early to some, um, some coins have done well, like Algorand and a few other private sales, which have done well. And so I was kind of recycling crypto money and also selling down from Airbnb to then pump into startups. And in my mind, they were like the, um, like I, I'm not a good day trader with stocks. Like I'm emotional. Uh, I make like, I, that, that my anti-portfolio in the stock market is like an investor's dream. So yeah. I, I like the idea of investing in something I actually know more about. I have a connection to the founders. I have a belief in what they're doing. And then it's like locked in the drawer and I can't touch it. So I, yeah, I started making those investments. I think the first, the first did some crypto before, but the first startup investment was with uh, Carted at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, VOP. So I, I actually, um, bummed enough, I, I interviewed Holly, um, on a podcast, uh, which I, um, which I did uh, a bunch of years ago and we just kept in touch. Uh, I think we first met in Singapore and then kept in touch over the years. And she, she's been, she, she's an incredible founder. Um, I've, I've always said like when she's saying something, I'm going to, I'm going to try back her. And I was lucky enough that uh, she she let me be part of the round. Um, I was basically the, the first money in um, to to vault, which then became carded. And yeah, it was it was kind of nerve wracking. It was like the it, it's not like I started with a small check. It was probably like it wasn't like one of my largest, but it was sort of like my like a pretty standard check, maybe even a touch higher than my average. Mm-hmm. So sort of like jumped in there, and then um, you know hey. You, you, tough thing about startup investing, you don't really know if you're any good until five or seven years later. Like there's a very <laughs> delayed feedback loop, right? And so, um, but anyway, you take the little signals um, along the way, and you, for a moment, you think you know what you're doing. So, Blackbird came in and led their this like a thirteen million dollar seed or pre yeah, seed round, which is one of Australia's biggest. Um, and the team, yeah, the team's been doing incredibly well. Like I, I obviously get their updates each each month and yeah they've, they've got some big things happening this year and imagine to attract some great talent so that that was my first investment yeah since since then you've invested i'm just checking the linkedin 20 what 26 25 investments since then how, one how as an angel investor do you add value there's a lot of talk about having great people on the cap table you're one of those people that like you want on your cap table you have operational experience throwing some money behind it, you can actually help in the weeds and get in the weeds with the founder. How do you view adding value at that level as an angel investor? How how do you differentiate yourself, I suppose, in that in that space? Yeah, I mean Well can you? Maybe maybe you maybe you can't because No you can. Okay. The the, like and I don't want to sound um like um arrogant when I say this, but like, it, it, it's easy, Like you just, you just have to do, you know, you just, you just mm. have to act, so actually back up with your, your words with actions, right? Mm. Like, I'm sure like whoever's try to raise money from like angels and VCs, I'll say, Hey, you know, end of the call, you know, Hey, let me know how we can help. You know, we're, we're value add, blah, blah, blah. But it's like, yeah, but what, like, what do they actually do? 
Like, what, yeah. what are they actually doing? And so my, and this is the way I've hustled into early deals is like, just, just be helpful. Like just, just go out there and do stuff that, you know, as a founder that you would appreciate. And it doesn't have to be like, Hey, I'm going to sit down and go through your growth model for six hours and like work with yeah. you on your whole like strategy for going to market. But you might see they've released a new product update and you might go through the sign up flow and loom it at the same time and just yeah. give them feedback. And I, I've done that. And like, how often do you just get a random person give you like an eight minute video with all this like commentary? It's like a free user interview and they'll reply back yeah. like, holy shit, thank you so much. Like we didn't even yeah. think about this and this. Yeah. So you can do stuff like that. You can look on their careers page or just ask them like who are your most important next hires and then i keep like a bit of a list of just people i think are exceptional and then i'll reach out and just try like send them potential hires ask them when you're looking to fundraise hey you know i know you know maybe i can introduce you to like james basher the tilt ceo is now a pretty prolific angel investor like um hey look what we talked about before like i can introduce you to mike at Greylock when you get further down the, the line and like yeah that might be like name dropping and, and, and like brand dropping. But the thing is like, if you, if you know some people and you know, they're going to be helpful, you can make those introductions around fundraising. You can help them with hiring, you can help them with product feedback. And I think, I think where most people fall down, they just talk about it instead of actually doing it. And maybe it's even an email, like someone like a founder emailed me and asked like, Hey, have you had any experience at setting up ESOP? It's kind of like, Oh, well, like, what am I going to do? Should I just send them this link or this template? And then, but I was like, no, I'm just going to write like a very like detailed note, which I know I can reuse in the future. And so you have like links and all these things. And I think, yeah, so to answer your question, like very long-winded way of saying is like, just, it's easy to differentiate yourself, just help and just do things that'll be helpful. Mm. And most people don't do that. You found probably. No. I think so. I like, I don't know, either that or I can some like, <laughs> it, it seems to be working for me. And I think, um, yeah, I, I think it compounds on itself as well, because if, if you do it, it's sort of like the whole, like, dig your well before you drink it. Like, I was mm. doing this before I could invest as well. Um, just just helping people. And then, like, re like the word slowly, you don't think it's happening, but the word slowly gets around. And then a, a, another founder will go, hey, do you know anyone? And then that's how you start generating deal flow, because they'll go, oh, this person's mm. really helpful. Um, either they invest or they didn't, but you should still chat. So... I don't know. It's kind of the thing you've just got to like do it and know the universe is going to like <laughs> get, give back. The good karma. Um, yeah. how, do, how do you view scaling yourself as you, you, you hit the 20 plus investments? You know, obviously you can't tend to them all at the same time. These templates I'm sure help. Uh, what do you, what, how do you see the next stages going? You know, maybe you get up to 50 investments, maybe you get up to 40 or maybe you just sort of sit still for a while. How do you how do you scale that that that, that advice and, and doing as you say? Um, yeah, it's a, it's a good question. So I think the, the the good thing is if if you invest in fifty companies, like my sweet spot is helping them at the very early stages, right? Mm -hmm. Like basically, um, like Rain, Rain Ong talks about like he's an investor to, and he's like the guy to get you to seed, you know. And I I sort of think this along the same kind of lines, like. I'm here to help you with all the stuff, which like the scrappy stuff, which I've done a bunch of times, get you to seed and like, I'll still help, but you're, then you're going to have someone like Samantha Wong on your board and she's like going to be a ton smarter than me and help you with like probably more pressing stuff as a company when you're like, as you're growing. So uh, I think the, the point I'm trying to make is like, as your companies grow up, they might not need or might not get as much value as like an angel, just like doing these little 
like it, my my help might not be as impactful when they're like a Series C company as opposed to when they're like a pre-seed company. So I think they kind of graduate up the stack a little bit, but you know you still can help with hiring all that stuff. Never sort of ends and being like a, a an evangelist from the sidelines. Um, so that's one thing. And then the second thing, like I guess I'm trying to create my own, my own system with how to like scale help. And you mentioned before like templates, but also like building lists of people I think would be great referrals for hires, early stage startups, like mm. all those little things you can just automate it and do the work once I think is helpful. And then in terms of personally, how I think about scaling as an angel investor from like 20 to then 50 or hundred, I think at some point you need to be full time, right? Like you can't be, it's probably difficult to be an operator and do like your best work uh, as an angel. Um, and I'm mm. sort of finding that now I just, I'm so dedicated to partly that um annual investing is just getting crammed in between like my baby crying and like mm. family time and trying to like catch up with a friend every so often mm. so it's just it just gets squeezed but but that's okay i mean maybe maybe someday down the road it'll be a full-time thing that i do um and then maybe i and i've already explored things like working as a scout for funds that's like a way mm. to scale up um and, and do those kind of things or running syndicates so mm. different ways to like slowly like grow in the background without necessarily dedicating that much more time to it mm-hmm. the scout and the the syndicates are interesting uh yeah the, the, the scout the, you're, you're a blackbird scout I've, I've met someone who's an air tree actually it was daniel brockwell who's an air tree scout um i love these programs they give you sort of access to the upside um just for sort of introductions and just being that first layer that first filter um how do you view taking your like you know is it are you taking your angel deals to and scouting them to the blackbird um and what's the what's the actual arrangement i don't know if it's it's confidential but is there a what how can we view the arrangement that you have as a scout is it you get a carry on you know how, how does that work yeah so um so the details of most scout programs are sort of just like they get passed through the grapevine so they're, they're not public but i i guess generally speaking for most Scout programs is some sort of arrangement of um, of how how you can actually sign off on deals. You can like some programs you can just do it yourself. Other ones you need to have like a full partner meeting. Sometimes you just need like a principal on the call. Hmm. Um, some you'll have to invest your own money, and then you know they'll invest some alongside it. Other times you'll just have like a set pool of money that you can invest, and you get the carry. Hmm. So they're also like different arrangements. Um, and yeah, we're, we're sort of just, we've worked through an early version um, that we've just done recently in New Zealand with Blackbird and sort of iterating on that. But um, yeah, I think it's it, it's pretty exciting. And it's just like another way to add value, right? You can say like, hey, I'll, I'll write your first angel check and, you know, guess what? Like I, I'm gonna, I can get you in front of, you know, with a really strong, warm intro to Blackbird. I know what they like. And, you know, this is how we can sort of pitch it to them. Um, so that's just like extra ways that you can help. Yeah. Um, before we wrap things, start to wrap things up, I've got a couple of questions for you on just, you know, the way that you operate your day. Um, and I, I view you as a pretty like structured guy and you're, you're always active and you're always like just on, on the, on the frameworks and the, the email templates and just doing, and that's how I view you. And that's how I've, I work with you. And just, that's the kind of sense that I get. What, what are the rituals that, that frame your day? Um, Generally speaking, in the morning, it might be a morning thing, it might be an evening thing. Like, how do you view and you know, how do you view that? And yeah, you know, yeah, you know, broadly speaking. Yeah, 
Well, it's going to be embarrassing. I might come along as like uh, a, a crappy version of Tim Ferriss now. Nah. Um, so I, yeah, let me, I'll, I saw walking through my day. So I, I, I wake up super early. Um, I, I get up and, um, I get up and go the, either go to the gym or take my dog for a walk. Mm. And, uh, I feel like that's just like a little bit of exercise that like gets me set for the day. Mm. And then, um, yeah, I, I keep my phone on airplane mode. It's like a little thing that's helped me like literally all the way that I get to my office on my desk and turn it on. So just mm. the. I don't have it by my bed. Like actually, even starting from bed, I have my phone in the corner. The alarm goes off, and that forces me to get up uh, when I say I'm going to get up. Do the gym, and then drive and have everything on airplane mode. I don't. Um, I, I don't have any caffeine um, anymore. Don't uh, eat bread. So I sort of do that intermittent fasting until about one p.m. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know. I think the the science is pretty like intermittent fasting seems like it's one of the biggest um like p- potential things around longevity so at least early studies suggest and for me it just like uh simplifies my morning i don't have to worry about um like making breakfast and then and, and it's funny because coffee i used to think was like my way to get more productive and focused but i've I, I think it takes two weeks but after stopping i think it's just like the clarity of mind like the less agitated i actually become a lot more uh focused so because well, well, I've been thinking about doing that, but I have a, a crippling addiction to caffeine. Um, what were the first two weeks like? Was it, uh, you know, was it really hard to get off that? No, I didn't think, I think just, um, I just like replace it with like caffeine free tea and stuff. Like, I think it's more like, you know, if you're, you're like doing dry gelato, you're not drinking alcohol or like, like if, if you do drink alcohol, you decide not to drink it for a month. Sometimes the most awkward thing is like I've got nothing in my hands at a party or when I'm in town, mm. and so, so like for me in the morning the, the ritual is coffee, so I just need to replace that with a new habit, right? The whole like cute habit or reward kind of thing. So I'd like mm. just go and get like a decaf long black or have mm. a um, like a like a, a, a caffeine free tea. It was fine, yeah. And then I, it's funny I find like that I just like really quiet mornings. I like not having to make any decisions. I have all my clothes laid out. Um, I don't use technology until I'm literally at the office, even in my car. I don't even have the radio on because I felt like the morning news around like COVID and things were like just too depressing. So I, I'm just kind of like this. I'm not like in a, in a in silence, but I'm just like, yeah, I just like, I don't know, it gives you time for your brain to wake up and mm. just start processing your emotions. And I found all of those things, they seem like maybe normal to some people, maybe like, weird to other people but i think it was just my way of finding like what leaves me centered and like relaxed in the morning to the point where i can just come in where i'm really mindful and then plan my day so when i sit down i do inbox zero so getting like my personal and partly or like work email to no emails mm-hmm. and then i i spend like an exorbitant amount of time uh planning like what mm-hmm. i'm gonna do because <laughs> so i find and so i normally do it the day before but then i'll sort of uh go through like my list and make sure there's no doubt in my mind that the order of stuff I'm working on is the right order. Mm. And then it's kind of like one part decluttering. So no emails, no slate, like nothing's waiting for me. And Mm. then I'm super clear on what like my order of things to do are. And then I've actually got like, I read a book uh, referred to me ages ago. I might've even told you to read it, which is called the one thing by Gary Keller. So I've actually got a, like a, a, a card list on my trailer board, which is the one thing, and I'll drag the one thing to focus on over to that. And then, um, and then yeah, now, now I just see how long I can work and not get distracted for, which is a constant battle. Constant battle, especially when you're working from 
home and the kitchen's right next to me and and yeah it's it's become increasingly difficult but it's it's also become a skill to try and work on that one thing and I, I do the same thing on the Trello board. Have the to do doing the backlog to do doing done, um, and to do is always that one thing that needs to the biggest. And you you taught me this that you know that that the biggest uh, highest lever kind of activity, the thing that's gonna the highest leverage activity rather. Um, couple more things in terms of upskilling. You're a busy man as it is. How do you view upskilling? Do you upskill? Uh, and what do you what do you do? What are your what do you, what's your advice in that that arena? Yeah, I've kind of like probably gone one eighty a little bit on this. I used to like the idea of like short courses, you know, to the or like going to lay down just like reading lots of blogs and sort of like upskilling by learning through that. And then I don't know. I feel like some of the time that's distracting me from just doing, you know, and I. And I'd say like the old thing of like learn on the job, but sometimes it's just literally like focusing and applying yourself and doing the work at hand is the best way to learn. And then, I mean, if I'm reading an article about how to like on like how to measure product market fit or how to improve retention, like that that's all well and good, but it's not that useful unless I'm actually doing it that day. So I really just try to like focus in on what's most important, do the work and then use those resources and really get absorbed in it when I need to do it. And, th and that's how I retain it. Like if I actually have to do it and I'm using those resources, then I can like always go back to it. Um, so that's one thing. And then the second thing is I, I actually prefer like, um, not like short courses or blogs, but just, just reading like really good books that get recommended. And I sort of treat that as my learning along with podcasts. So, I mean, books is my way that I wind down. And so, so continue sort of learning general sort of theories and just interesting things to read. Um, and then podcasts, I feel like it's just been the, the ongoing flow of information into my brain, which I, I think sometimes it's hard to know how much you absorb, but I find it's, it's, it's in there somewhere and it sort of like accumulates over time. And I, I find it's like the one, it's, it's something that you can do while doing like one other task which doesn't require much like you can be walking you can be gardening you can be like exercising and i can take a podcast in so i sort of like marry those two uh together yeah. um last question here uh on your favorite angel investments to date and i'll pair that with what founders you think we should be on the lookout for or are going to be the defining founders of the next five years that's a, that's a loaded question but maybe there's some names Ooh. you can throw in there and i can take this clip and share it with you in five years and see if you're right or wrong. Oh, I like it. Um, well, I mean, selfishly, I'm going to choose um, some of the, my portfolio companies because they're, they're the people I believe in most. Um, so um, Luis at uh, Treenter, so they're a, a LATAM uh, business that focus on, I guess, like uh, micro businesses. So helping them with their, basically to sell more online and reduce their costs. And they, they have had incredible growth over 80,000 businesses in January, 2021. And then today they're around 4 million. So that, that they have grown. I think, so I, I invested, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, I, so I invested pre YC and then that was like just, just around the 80,000 mark. And then to watch them over the last year, it's been crazy. And now they're like, a, I mean, been coming up to like a couple hundred million dollar company so that's been crazy and then and he's you know he's like i think he's from spain yeah he's from spain originally he was a ex-mckinsey 
guy, but they're, they're, they're just hustlers. Like they're building mm. a crazy fast growing business. So I think that'll definitely be one to watch and more and more VCs are starting to pull money into Latam. So I think, um, how, do, how do you, how do you spell the company name? Uh, T R E I T A. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Um, so, so he's fantastic. I actually caught up with him today. Um, Charles, uh, from poised, uh, he, he's awesome. Uh, I met him through on deck. His um, poise is sort of like the Grammarly for speech. So, you know, Grammarly will pick up on your typos and things like that. Poise you'll have running in the background when you're on a Zoom call or even a call like this, and it'll start monitoring uh, your filler words. It makes you quite self-conscious when you first use it. Like, yeah. uh, then over time you say like, okay, just did then. Um, and then it'll sort of like, if you're speaking too fast or it'll show you your dominance in the conversation or the, and it's kind of like, it can come to your Apple watch or it can be recorded and you've got this dashboard. So it's people have seen, particularly as we went remote, how important it is to, you know, or like, I guess the benefits you can be from being a good um, presenter and a good speaker. And so that um, that's like a constant training, sort of like Grammarly's for writing that is for speaking. So I think they're one to watch. And then last one, yeah. No, I was just going to say that uh, you shared me the, the poised deck uh, when they were doing that round and I had my money parked in a, and I, funnily enough, it was in a, uh, equity and equities. Uh, it was a, in a, in a public markets business and, um, uh, and that went to shit and I probably should have invested in poised. So that's, that's that. So what was the third, we'll move on from that. Uh, what was the third uh, business that you, uh, that you're looking forward to? Everyone's got their own little anti-portfolio. I, I still remember, like when I before I had the money to invest, when um, uh, Ben Benjamin Humphrey and his co-founder uh, were starting Dovetail, and I was mm. like, "Man, these guys are on something." So I joined as an early employee. Maybe I could invest in them. Don't have the money, and now they're like they'll be the next like Atlassian or Canva. I've got yeah. no doubt. So that's that's going to be one to stomach over the years. But um, last one, um, last one for me. So I've sort of got like. Poises in the US, um, Trantors in Latin America, and then Vend Ease is in Africa. Uh, so they're based in, or they started in Nigeria. And uh, Tunde, the the CEO there, he's 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 pretty incredible. The, the, actually, the whole founding team's pretty amazing. Uh, so they do, um, I guess, B two B supplies, um, so food supplies for African restaurants. Huge. Huge problem over there, really expensive, um, really slow deliveries, um, like basic lack of like a home for them to like manage their, their expenses and quality mm. control and all that. So they have, they have grown super fast as well. Um, I don't know if I've shared any of their numbers, so I won't, um, I won't share it, but they're, yeah, they're, they've raised yeah, they their, I, I think I came in their pre-seed, they did their seed at a 50 mil vowel and now they're doing their series A. So, um, yeah, I, I think that's that. That'll we're starting to see more of these success stories that pop up in like in Latam or mm. or in Africa, like Chipper Cash, which a lot of Australians got into. Um, that's now a two billion dollar company in Africa. So I think we'll see more and more of these success stories from those markets. And um, yeah, so I'm 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 pretty excited to watch those three. Awesome, um, mate. Well, that that that's everything. Was there was there any uh, anything you wanted to say before I wrap it up? Anyway where people can catch you if you, if someone has a good idea or a good um, business that you should be involved in. Um, is there anything there that you, you'd like to say? Yeah. I mean, um, firstly, thanks very much for having me on the pod. Uh, right. Very, very cool uh, to be a guest. 
and I was like just nice um, using this as an excuse to catch up again, uh, catch up together again for, for nearly an hour and a half now. So it's, it's yeah. been wicked. Um, but yeah, and like, like I said, I, I love meeting founders. I love hearing about their their vision for the future. And um, and as I sort of said, I, I try to back up my actions with words and actually and actually help. So if <clears throat> if there is something that I can do, or if I've got an idea, or they're looking to sort of raise money. Uh, they can hit me up on LinkedIn. So um, easiest way to find me just Harrison Uffendel. Um, maybe I'll let you pop that in like the show notes or something. Nice. It's not the easiest name to spell or remember. That's all right. um, or yeah, or my just email me directly. That's on my LinkedIn as well. But you can just do harrison.uffendel at gmail.com. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I'd probably find you on TikTok, I assume, right? You're, you're probably uh, doing, doing the reels on Instagram and stuff. Not yet. I'm uh, I'm debating whether I get the TikTok account and and uh, try to go viral. And maybe one of your clips will go viral on there, mate. Well, you you were a um, you were a sort of a viral Cora. Uh, oh yeah, I, were you not? I was. I was. I, I had. I was in a Chinese newspaper that got uh, <laughs> off a off a uh, post that got or an answer that got a million views. Um, and I was really big on Cora, and I probably should have kept it up, but you know it's time consuming and. I've I've always been interested in doing content, um, but one time, and you know, two you have to have something to give to give back, and so the pod the podcast specifically is just a way for me to talk to people and catch up because COVID's really put a nail in that coffin, um, and just having new conversations with people. So obviously, I'll start with you and, and some other people that I know, James Alexander and Alex Matilakam from uh, who who I knew previously. Um, but then I'll try to expand and try to get like get get other people on the pod and get to meet new people. And I just can't do that in the office, especially this at a smaller company where the where the head counts like under under fifteen, under ten. Yeah. So it's it's kind of my way of like killing two birds with one stone and keeping my having a consistent routine as well in doing this. So I get to learn from great people like you, mate. I'm gonna stop recording now, and I'll um and I'll uh, and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks very much. See you, mate. Cheers, brother.